Today, we talk with Dylan Kirsch, licensed marriage and family therapist, about our shared experiences in the world of recovery, as well as the frontier-like and occasionally volatile living conditions of the Sober Living Environment, or SLE. For listener edification, an SLE is essentially a home for persons in early recovery, struggling with addiction, or recently discharged from inpatient addiction treatment who are trying to stay sober while matriculating back into everyday life. Next, Dylan will share his ideas around therapy and early recovery and his subsequent applications of something called attachment theory. He will outline the varying attachment styles, many of which can be detected in children as young as 18 months old. Lastly, I need to say that not all SLEs are created equal. Many are run as tight as any ship and serve as valuable stepping stones for anyone in early recovery trying to get back on their feet. To this end, I have provided a comprehensive list of SLEs in the San Francisco Bay Area recommended by Dylan and myself in the program notes. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. All right, I'm here with Mr. Dylan Kirsch. How the hell are you? I am pretty awesome, man. Yeah, the uh, Super Bowl was pretty unentertaining, but you know what? This will hopefully prove to be uh, more engaging. Well, that's what you get for listening to the Super Bowl. You know, <laughs> the only re- redeeming qualities of team sports is the fact that there's less traffic and more parking on uh, big game days. I find the camaraderie and the fun and the food of the event to be my favorite part. So today it was just me, my wife, my four-month-old, and a bunch of seven-layer dip. That's not a terrible thing. <laughs> so let's just start, man. So for everybody, information. Dylan is a licensed marriage and family therapist like myself. I met Dylan. Dylan, you tell the story. How did we meet? Ah, We met probably July 5th. July 5th. July 5th, 2013. That's a very exact day. I know this because my last day in rehab was July 4th, 2013. And that was the day that I moved into the, gosh, what was the name of it? We're using, what was the name we're coming up with for the, is it Larry? What did we decide on? uh, Larry Living Room. Larry Living Room is the name that we have come up with, the pseudonym for the man that ran this SLE. An SLE is a sober living environment. It means a sober house, a place where people in early recovery live together, have you know house meetings, drug tests, accountability, one would hope, and kind of muddle through the early recovery process together. So for those of you who don't know, when you're hopelessly addicted to say, uh, what, were you, what was your drug of choice? I was hopelessly addicted to multiple substances. They would call me a poly substance abuser. Ooh. Yeah. Uppers, downers. I don't even, I don't, there's no such thing as an all arounder, but when you put the uppers <laughs> and downers together, once about Every couple months you get for about five minutes, you hit that nice spot of all around her. A friend of mine, he's in recovery and he draws this sine wave graph where like there's too damn high and there's not damn high enough. <laughs> and then he draws a yeah. line in the middle and it's like if, you, if you're if you doing too much cocaine, you're too high and then you drink a little alcohol or take a little bit of Xanax to lower you down. And if you're not high enough, you take a little bit more coke and maybe a little bit some other upper and you kind of try to get into this perfect little zone and it takes usually four or five drugs to get into that just right all around her place. Yeah. yeah, there were days that I spent $200 and eight hours trying and never succeeding to get to that place. Um, wow. So, so kids don't do drugs. Yeah, don't. It's bad. Yeah. Drugs are bad. At any rate, so when you're like <laughs> Dylan and you're all messed up 
you go to an inpatient rehab where if you have a ton of money or really great insurance, you land in the lap of luxury and you get to pet horses, sit in big comfy beds and <laughs> eat amazing food and complain about it endlessly. That's my favorite part in retrospect is how victimized the people in the $50,000 rehab feel. I mean, I'm excited for this podcast or this interview, just remembering the insanity. It's like the book Running with Scissors, like when you live in an SLE, the insanity of everybody bouncing off each other, all these molecules bouncing off each other, everybody totally insane. It's fantastic, the stories that come out of it. And by $50,000 rehab, he means 50000 a month and up. And if they have terrible insurance or no money, or they just actually, in my opinion, kind of get lucky and get a really kind of rundown rehab, you know, something more hardcore that reminds you of what life is. They spend about two or three months in that. Usually when they quote unquote graduate from inpatient, they go to intensive outpatient treatment center, which is kind of like day camp for drug addicts, <laughs> where you go for the day and like have a group and talk to people and they test you and there's therapists there and then you go home at night. And where people are usually living during that time is at a sober living house with a bunch of other folks that are presumably also addicts. One of the things though about sober living houses is that they're totally unregulated. Essentially, it's just one guy, let's say Larry Living Room, Larry Living Room, who literally just rents a house somewhere, <laughs> in this case, Marin County, and right. says, hey, I'm opening a sober living house and goes around to all the rehabs and says, hey, I'm Larry Living Room and I'm great. And you should send your patients to my sober living environment. There's uh, two bunk, two beds per room. And those beds cost about $2,500 to $3,000 a month. And if you want your own room, it's like $5,000 a month. And what we yeah. provide at this fantastic establishment, which is basically a house, a house with a room in it, is we have random urine testing once or twice a week. We have house meetings and we check up on them. We search their rooms and we rough them up if they mess up <laughs> and we kind of sort of babysit them sort of. Yeah. But the thing is, is that they're so unregulated that really anything goes. There are no rules. It's just a house in a random place in a random city. There's, it's, it's kind of crazy. So There's no certification process. There's no clearing house. Yeah. Nothing. It's just there. And so... <laughs> Yeah. I was a um, a gopher, like a, a TA, a tech, a guy who ran around ushering people to groups at Bayside Marin, which is a rehab. And I decided they weren't paying me enough. And um, God bless them. They decided to give me a $2 raise after I basically was the weekend manager. I could run the whole the whole facility, essentially. And they said, oh, you're amazing. Here's an extra two bucks. And I'm like, okay, it's, I'm done. So I went to work for Larry Living Room at one of his SLEs who paid me a little bit more to work as uh, just be his assistant. <laughs> he had two houses, so I would scoot between the houses and I would urine test people. If someone was freaking out, I'd help calm them down or I'd help people move in, move out. I just was whatever he needed me to do. I would sleep there two or three nights out of the week. I was the cops. And that's what I did. And I did that for about a year and a half. And in that year and a half, Dylan was one of the residents at this particular lovely um, yes. facility. Yes. <laughs> so Dylan, what was it like having me as your cop? Ah, gosh, it's bringing back all these memories of all the people. So we'll come up with some pseudonyms. So my, I remember my roommate, we'll just call him Scott. And I think it was like his 17th time in rehab um, when he moved in. There was a girl, we'll call her Terry, and she had severe brain damage, I think, and kidney problems and was basically dying. And she was getting charged five grand a month for her own room. Six. And wasn't even sober, I don't think. Six grand. And then there was Kara, we'll call her Kara. 
the Brazilian Jewish yoga instructor who I became very well acquainted with. Remember the uh, the blonde that had the kid? Oh my God. That was the one that Larry Living Room, we are pretty sure, was inappropriate with. Yeah. What, 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 yeah. what shall we call her? Should we just call her Blondie? Blondie, what the hell? Those are all the characters that I can come up with right now. That's perfect. I'm just going to go down the list because these are some juicy stories. And by the way, I'm not violating anyone's confidentiality because I was not a licensed therapist at that time. Neither was Dylan. No, I wasn't even. I was on leave from school. We were just humans in a house. <laughs> okay, that's it. Right. So what story do you want to do first? Oh, my God. So I was pretty naive. This was my first time at the rodeo. First time trying to get sober or any of this. So I just, I didn't have a lot of context. And I remember my favorite story about my roommate, Scott, is one time I came home and the guy was butt naked, completely passed out on his bed. And I just, what did you do, right? What do you do there? And I can't remember. Did you put a towel over him? Did you hide him? I don't remember. Gosh, I think I just left as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I told any staff. And then I asked him about it. I, when I next saw him, I was like, hey, Scott, uh, so dude, what happened? Like you were passed out butt naked on the bed and I tried to wake you up and you didn't get up. And I think he said something like, oh, I just took my sleep medication early tonight. Just some bullshit excuse. And I just was naive and just went, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then he ended up, you know, being testing positive multiple times, had bought urine on the internet that he stored under the bed. I think you found his urine. Oh, yeah, here. that's right. <laughs> he, that's right. He had fake piss, like little yellow. What the hell was it? I thought he ordered other people's piss on the internet. No, I think it was actually fake pee. And the, the way you can tell it's fake pee is because the creatine levels are totally stable from one piss test to the next. <laughs> and then there was another guy who had a wizard. Like he had like he would piss. A wizard is like, like a, a tube that comes up your pant leg and you hold it on your dick. Yeah, you have and then you have a fake dick, which is the wizard. Yeah. And, and then you piss into a bottle. The thing about SLEs is that people were like drug relapse is rampant. Because oh, it's, it's it's the it's not the it's the norm, not the yeah. It's, it's yeah. they're so porous, and the rules were if you use drugs, you get kicked out of the house for three days and then brought back in. And the problem with SLEs is it's a pure profit motive because as soon as somebody gets kicked out, especially an SLE where they're charging that much money, I mean the profit margin it must be incredible, right? And Larry Living Room was a dirtbag. We you and I agree yeah. on that. He was renting the house for seven grand a month. And he mm. had maybe seven or eight people in there at $3,000 mm. a piece and more. And that one girl for $6,000. Yeah. That one girl, um, would you call her Terry? She had a Mercedes. And some woman opened up the, tr she opened up her trunk and she had a bar. Like she had a yeah. full bar of, of drinks. And then Larry would kick her out for a few days and then bring her back into the house because it was just so much money. And he, this happened probably 20 or 30 times before he finally mm -hmm. was like, you know, we got to get rid of her because there was too much pressure from the people in the house. I mean, this woman, and she was also, she had some brain damage, I guess, from some accident years ago. Yeah, she was very sweet, but very, you know, cognitively compromised. Yeah. And it was really heartbreaking to see. And her mom was just so desperate. This is kind of the dark side of, of the recovery, early recovery. Industry. She would walk around the house like a ghost. Ugh, it was weird. And I yeah. caught like men sneaking into her room. Wow. Yeah, there was like some dude, like I saw him, like I think they would crawl over the roof and stuff. Like I caught one guy, like kind of <laughs> hopping the fence. You know, nice guy. <laughs> anyway, she was in her own little world. I never, I didn't know how to handle her because she would slam the door in my face all the time if I knocked on her door and she'd say, fuck you, go away. And I'm like, Larry, what do I do? And he's like, I don't know. You handle it. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know? What am I paying you for? Yeah, and uh, I just don't think she was ever sober. No, she wasn't. I get angry thinking about this part of it and, and some of the other things that I'm sure we'll share. He was really unethical and his how he no longer is in business. Yeah. Um, many others have do a better job, but there's still a lot of profit motive that, that really taints this industry, which is really a bummer. I, I was once we were cleaning out the couch and he found a $20 bill like in the couch and without any thought of it, he just kind of threw it in his wallet. And it wasn't like, whose is this? <laughs> Did someone lose 20 bucks? It was like, well, there's everyone here has so much money anyway. It doesn't even matter. Uh, more stories? I will say this. Co-ed sober living is a really bad idea. Yes. When you are in early sobriety and you have lost your number one tool, your blankie, your medicine, your drug of choice, you are raw and the emotions are flooding back and you have very little to comfort you. Things that can fill that void that drugs and alcohol did are things like food and romance. And so when you put a bunch of vulnerable, really hurting, desperate, raw co-eds together in a house, and then you make rules that say you are not allowed to have any romantic contact, any sexual contact, any of that with anyone living in the house. And if you do, you're getting kicked out. So luckily, the industry now is almost, it's almost exclusively same-sex SLEs. Anyway, that leads me to the the fact that uh, one evening, uh, watching TV late on the couch, I ended up uh, making out with, what do we call her? Kara? Kara. Kara. Brazilian Kara. yoga gym. The Brazilian, the Brazilian Jewish yoga teacher. And you walk in mm-hmm. and we pretend like we weren't doing anything. And you pretend like you didn't see anything. So we figured we got away with it. Yeah. Because we, you know, we had a good relationship and she and you were close. <laughs> and we just assumed we got away with it. Uh-huh. And then the next day, I think you came to us and you were very serious, very <laughs> serious tone. You were just like, really, you really needed to talk to us about this. And you told us that you were very sorry, but you had to tell Larry Living Room <laughs> that you caught us missing out. I think, I know, I remember I re- I had no problem with that. I was bummed, but I re- totally respected it and understood where you're coming from. I think one thing about my early recovery process was I was I was really scared and willing to do anything to be sober. And so one of the main tenets of recovery is honesty and integrity. And so when you were saying I have to have integrity and be honest, it didn't bother me at all. I knew. I knew I had to accept whatever mm-hmm. came from it. But then you guys started, you continued. <laughs> well, here was the thing, was that you told Larry Living Room and he said, yeah, you can't live here anymore, which was okay because I had to move into the $800 a month SLE because my parents um, were cutting me off at that point. Um, and that's a good thing. I'm glad they did. And so I knew that at that point it was like, well, I'm here till the end of the month and I'm already kicked out. So we might as well break the rules often. <laughs> I remember I, I knew full well that what you guys were doing and I just decided I didn't give a fuck. And I'm not sure why I decided that. I think, I don't know, man, I guess <laughs> I, I don't mean to blame Larry Living Room for everything, but I just, he was so lax about stuff and he was just all about the money. I don't know. I don't know what it was. I think, is it possible you felt maybe a little bit guilty because you really liked us? and Yeah, I, that's the thing that we should talk about. There's a weird bond that would happen because the thing is, is that I'm not, I'm a kind of a social misfit. Honestly, at that time, my main social group was you people. You know, we would sit outside, you know, make yeah. cracking jokes at nights. They would, y'all would smoke hours. cigarettes, chilling, and I would do it for hours. It was like telling on a friend. And I think that's one of the sick yeah. things about SLEs is that the people that work there, I mean, I'm saying myself and other people, you get too friendly with the residents and you sort of become one of them. It's like, it's like a weird, I don't know, 
I want to compare it to something like Lord of the Flies, but that isn't an apt analogy. But it's like it's it's just it's like a little universe. When you work in a treatment center, there's really clear lines because you're part of the treatment treatment team, and you're mm-hmm. there's all these rules, and you have supervisors. And I had no over no one overlook looking over me. You know, part of one of the dark things about Esli is like, I remember this conversation once. I was talking to this guy. I can actually use his name, uh, Spencer, and um, oh, he man. he was remember him. He was my, I sponsored him for years. I was spoke. I gave his eulogy. Oh, yeah, I remember yeah. him having a conversation with him about o, the, the term OG. Like, <laughs> and, and he said, "Well, we were talking." He's like, "Like Ben's been here forever. He's one of the OGs." And I said, "I'm actually a double OG." He's like, "Really?" <laughs> and then somehow I don't know how we got to quadruple OG that I. <laughs> <laughs> that I was a quadruple OG, and he was just the most relaxed, kind of fun, no, I miss him. yeah, chill guy, you know. And you know, one of the things that Larry Living Room did teach me was that young white males and opiates they don't last so long. Mm-hmm. They're doing fine for a while, and all of a sudden, you see a post on Facebook, "Rest in peace," and like it's right there, and it's just it hits you right in the gut. You're just surfing around the internet, and all of a sudden, bam! This guy that you've known is dead. And yeah, that happened. he died on my birthday. And they're young. Yeah. Yeah. It happened on your what? On my birthday. His mom called me. I was an intern at the time. I was I was interning doing my my hours at Family Works, and I remember I got done with my sessions. I checked my voicemail. It was his mom saying she found him oh. and he'd overdosed in her bathroom. Oh. And uh, and he was. I mean, he had been to multiple SLEs, but yeah. um, his girlfriend at the time. I don't remember her. She went. Her name's Annie. She and I were texting this week about him too. I mean, it's um. Yeah, he was uh, such a special guy. It's yeah. really heartbreaking. Yeah. Ugh. You know, the other thing about, about opiates, you can correct me here, but my, my feeling is that opiate addicts or persons suffering from opiate addiction, that's a better way of saying it, they look kind of clean. They look kind of okay. They don't look run down like somebody who's on meth or drunk. Very true. They don't look tired like someone who's on Xanax. They kind of look sharp. I once had a guy say to me, I was like, why is it that heroin addicts always look good? And he says, heroin preserves a man. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. there's just something about them. They look great. Everything's fine. And then all of a sudden they're dead. So I think I've seen maybe or heard maybe a, at least a, I'd say I'm pushing 20 deaths at this point of people I've kind of known in the field, yeah. something like that. It's just awful. It's just yeah, awful. It really is. I mean, that's the dark side of all this. Like when you live in the the recovery world for a while, you know, you it's like you have to laugh to keep from crying. And there's this total acceptance of we can make fun of everything we have to have fun. We have to laugh at ourselves because the truth of the matter is that this is life or death and we have to face death on a regular basis. Um, so it's this interesting juxtaposition that mm-hmm. when you live in this world and a lot of people, when they step into the world for the first time are like, how can you guys joke about that stuff? How can, how is that funny? How are you laughing? And that's why I tell people who, you know, they make judgments about people in recovery or they make judgments about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm like, you know what, man, these people aren't dying. And that's what they're doing. They're they're trying not to. They're they're fighting for their lives. So fuck you in your judgments. Yes, you know, seriously, Preach. go fuck yourself. Huh. I'm gonna give you this one right now, Ben. Oh, did you have to do that? <laughs> I didn't have to, but I right, I bought the the hype button. All right, I'll, is one of my favorite uh, tools right, there. I'll keep it. So. I think the the last kind of will end on a little higher note with the, the SLE. There was Blondie who kept relapsing and she would get drunk and she's a sociopathic liar pretty much. Oh yeah. And she was always talking about how famous she was or how famous she was going to be, how she was always name dropping shit. And she'd come across as really kind of put together, but then she'd come completely unhinged. I knew she was getting special treatment when she would get drunk and Larry Living Room would allow her to stay in her room and just say, keep everybody away from her room. 
then that rumor went around that he had been hooking up with her. And I went to him and I said, look, man, this is what I'm hearing from people. No judgment. And I guess he called everybody together and said they're reading into things. And I still don't know, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me. I mean, she was, uh, mm-hmm. she, um, she liked to sleep with people, that one, which is fine. <laughs> it's fine. No judgment, no judgment yeah. at all. I mean, who doesn't like to sleep yeah. with people, right? But I don't have any hard, what was your evidence of that? Did you, I didn't actually ever see anything. I just so saw a lot of preferential treatment. I just heard, I heard many stories of them up late in the living room together yeah. that's it just seemed fishy but the the story that deserves to be told is how larry living room got his name <laughs> so, so larry living room for those of you who yes. don't know is very much a name that one might use in a pornographic film to say this is my <laughs> this is my name i'm mr larry living room and this is my nice this is my f bunny uh luscious lieta or something i mean or whatever <laughs> So what does it take the first, the name of your, the street you grew up in and you're the first name of your first dog. And yeah, apparently my, like my porn name is Moss Filbert. Oh yeah. That, that makes sense. You're the, <laughs> that would work for like the nerdy guy <laughs> and secretary or something What's your like porn that. name, Dylan? I think mine was William Manor. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, that's not so bad. It actually worked. I don't know why that's yeah. funny. So anyway, so uh, why don't you tell the story of how he earned that so, name? So the, a guy that I was in, inpatient with, this guy, Derek, he lived in the other house. He lived in the other house, not the one I lived in. And he actually lived there for a while, probably nine, 10 months, I think. Um, and at one point, he's out on the deck having a cigarette. And I guess there was two doors that led out to the deck, one from the living room and one from his bedroom. So he goes out his bedroom door to have a cigarette and he looks to his left and he can. there's windows to the living room. He looks through, he sees Larry living room sitting there on his laptop and he goes, what is Larry Living Room doing? And he takes a couple steps closer and he realizes Larry Living Room is watching porn in the living room of the sober living house in which he runs to protect addicts from themselves. Then Derek films it. <laughs> right? Yeah. He films it and starts sending it to everybody. So now everybody who's like ever had any contact with Larry Living Room in the early recovery industry within not very long, by that evening, has seen this video of Larry Livingroom watching porn in his living room, in <laughs> room of his sober house for many reasons, as you can probably deduce from how we've been talking about him. Nobody was really a fan of Mr. Livingroom at that point. And we had actually been complaining to different treatment centers that we'd been to and saying, you, you shouldn't send people to Larry Livingroom's houses. The guy is unethical. Here's all the stuff. And then they would go to Larry Living Room and he would say, I'm Larry Living Room. I'm an upstanding guy. These addicts, you know, they just make up, you know, these addicts and how they are. Yeah. And these treatment centers kept going, oh, we've been working with Larry Living for a while and you addicts are always causing trouble. You darn addicts. <laughs> so then we decided, I can't remember how the decision was made, but there was a decision to actually share the video with a couple of the treatment centers. And then, and that was done. That's what That happened. was the beginning of the end. Yeah, I left shortly after that. Were you still working there when that happened? Yeah, not for very much longer, though. I'd, I'd had enough. You know, I needed an income. I kind of feel a little bit compromised ethically that I stayed as long as I did, but I didn't know what else to do. But yeah, I left. Um, did you know about the prostitutes? No, but I got to ask you this. Did, before, I want to hear about that, but I also want to hear, did someone send you the video or did someone show it oh, to you? That guy showed it to me on his phone that like okay. he's like look yeah and i'm like holy shit and i, I was like yeah. i should tell larry living room this but at that time it was just so like how do you go to your boss and say hey um <laughs> by the way your career is about to crater just saying you know 
Um, and but there was there was another guy who actually saw him watching porn in the other. He got up. He was he walked into the living room at a different house late at night, and Larry was actually watching porn on the big screen TV at like two in the morning, where anyone could have walked in. Like not even on his phone. Like that's just that's remi- I didn't learn that until months later. But that's that's. I think he was a sex addict because you didn't hear about the prostitutes. Oh yeah, wait, I I did hear. About yeah, them. so I, I, I guess one of the somebody found his, his laptop got left open and he was sending. He was like on this website spending his money on like yeah prostitutes, which is his yeah. thing. That's fine. You can do that. You know, sex work. You know, whatever. Um, I'm pretty sure Dylan that he was spending all of his profits on sex. In one form or another. Yeah. Like, that's my theory anyway. Here's the one thing to extrapolate from this. Yes. If you are somebody who's listening to this for more than just some funny stories, when you are choosing uh, an SLE for yourself or a loved one, it's best to have somebody in recovery be kind of the owner operator. And, you know, you want to vet them a little bit and has a good reputation as like a strong member of their recovery community. Yeah. Because there's really a, an absolute correlation yeah. between somebody's sobriety and their integrity you have to be an honest good person you have to have integrity or you will relapse eventually you really can trust somebody in recovery who's been sober a while especially if they have a good reputation one of the great things about recovery is that it's it's like perfect karma i mean there there's no way to beat the game no you either play by the rules be a good person do the work change yourself and get a great life if you try to cut corners or be two-faced you're going to relapse. So yeah, yeah. there's tons of really sad examples of where people yeah. in recovery kind of got a little big for their britches and became about the bottom line. You want to talk about Doug Casper for a second? Well, you know, I was the program director there for like a year. I mean, this is kind of heartbreaking. You know, this guy was a really sweet guy. He was the first person in Marin County to bring sober companioning. So there's this industry. It was really big in LA. There was actually a, the number one company down there was called hired power because in recovery you need a higher power so hired power is you hire somebody and you pay like 50 bucks an hour for this person to just make sure you don't drink and they're called a quote-unquote sober companion and so this guy had this entrepreneurial spirit and he started this company in the bay area from nothing you know out of a garage just personally went around and said i'm a sober companion started getting a little work met a couple of doctors got out with some treatment centers had a lot of work, started hiring other people to work for him. Then he started getting contracts with the rehabs covering shifts when they would have people, when, they need, when people would call in sick and they didn't have anyone to cover, he would send his people in. Sober transport's a huge industry where you take people from the airport to the rehab, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so he builds this, bu- this business called Shine Light. Yeah. Then he gets into sober livings. Next thing you know, he has like seven sober livings. Seven. The guy is the king. He's the king of, of Marin recovery. And could still have been to this day. Oh, yeah. He was great. And he was positive. And in the beginning, he did the deal. And then, you know, it's weird. I feel almost like bad because he was, you know, he was my boss. We were we were close at times. I worked for him for a little bit. I don't want to say anything disrespectful. You no, know, it's but, not disrespectful. It's just the truth. I mean, I worked for yeah. the guy. I, I did contract work for him as a therapist. He was a good dude. I'm just sharing my emotional experience as it's happening, you know, that I'm feeling, yeah. I'm going to tell the stories. I just feel there's this feeling that's coming up like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, don't, don't, um, don't be disloyal or something yeah. like that, but I, I'm fine with it. I just wanted to share that was my experience. So he, he built this giant, he, you know, he, I mean, he was, he, it was practically an empire. 
every treatment, all the top and treatment centers used him. I mean, he was, and he was the only show in, show in town for a while. And I remember when I came in, when I first got sober, you know, he was, he was almost like a larger than life figure, you know, and then he relapsed. Mm -hmm. He had stopped really being in recovery. I mean, he loved his work and he just would, his, his, his specialty was going in and doing extractions and getting people who were like in a bender holed up in a hotel room with massive amounts of their drugs of choice. He was the master of going into that situation and somehow getting that person out of that situation into the treatment center. That was just a huge adrenaline rush and a huge ego boost. And he was the best at it and he loved it. I mean, the guy was working probably 20 hours a day. Um, his phone is off the hook because he's got a dozen people out there, sober companions working for him, seven sober living houses. So he had no time for any self-care recovery relapses, goes to treatment, comes back and says, all right, I'm back. And the whole industry says, well, wait a minute, Doug, you, you know, we're not comfortable with you running your company right now. Uh, you need to take care of yourself. Nobody was willing to work with him or send him people, you know, after a 30 day treatment program. Almost everybody said, Doug, you know, you need like a year sober at least before you should be working with clients. And I think actually he got loaded with a client. That's what happened too. Yeah, I know that story. You want to hear that story? Yeah, I do. Uh, so he, he was picking up a client, I guess. He was transporting him to a rehab and the client was using, as he was picking him up, the client had some, I guess, methamphetamine and, and, and Doug said, hey, give me a piece. I've already relapsed. And so he got high yeah. with the client and then he left the client and the client was like, I, I, I'm trying to get to this rehab. So the client arranged transportation for himself, I, I, I believe, and then got to the rehab and the bed that was supposedly for the client was already taken and was taken by Doug. Ah. That's so fucked up. Yeah. Anyway, so it just kept falling apart and kept falling apart. Yeah. I mean, well, he, what happened then was he finally got sober, but he wasn't allowed to run his companies. Like there was a bunch of people he would put somebody in to run his company and tell people, "I'm not. I don't have my hands on it. Just, I'm not working there." But secretly, he couldn't keep his hands off it. That was his drug of choice. And so he hired me. He probably was six months sober. I'm being told, you know, I'm hands off. It's you and this guy, JP. You guys are going to run this company. Don't worry about me. And I said, sounds good. Pays well. I'm in. And it was really heartbreaking to see that he couldn't get back into actually real recovery, which is the work of working on yourself part, dealing with your emotional traumas, being a good person, putting in work spiritually to feel connected to something bigger than ourselves, having a community in recovery. We share our, our ups and downs on a daily basis with, you know, that's recovery. And he wasn't, he wanted to get back to where he was. He wanted to get back on top. He wasn't willing to do the work. And eventually, yeah, eventually I left the company because it was dysfunctional and he died not that long after. Um, and uh, so sad. yeah, after relapsing and um, it was really, it was really sad. Ugh. It goes to show you, you know, those of us in long-term recovery know you can't put anything above your recovery. You can't let shiny objects distract you from like the blocking and tackling day-to-day -day of working on yourself um, and trying to be a better person. Yeah. Thanks for that. So Dylan, when I approached you about this podcast, I said, hey, let's talk about the insanity of SLEs, but I also want this to be an advertisement for how amazing you are. Ah, thanks, Ben. I, I'm, I'm kind of arrogant, so I consider myself to be somewhat of an expert on addiction and recovery. But I like having guys like you around where I can go, you know what? I don't know what the fuck is happening here. I'm going to ask Dylan, you know, help. So you're, you know what, Dylan, just go do your, do your thing. Tell the world, who are you and what do you do, man? What's your, what's your, what do you, how, what do you like out there in the world as a therapist? Thank you, Ben. That was really nice. I was, I was touched. You know, I do a lot of things. 
you know, my website, www.dylankirsch.com. It's in the program notes. And if you want to contact <laughs> Dylan, it will be in there. And I really encourage you. He, he works in Marin County and he also is on the internet. He can do Zoom sessions from anywhere, anywhere in the state of California. And during COVID, there are a lot of state waivers. So actually, it's pretty much okay to work with me uh, in many states. Oh, cool. Um, all right. Yeah. Let's hear it for COVID, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's dark. On my website, I offer three different services. There's psychotherapy. Um, I also was running a men's group um, until COVID hit, as Ben also is going to do the same. Mm-hmm something I'm passionate about. I'm certified in EMDR therapy. So that's a trauma therapy that helps people to process their deeper traumas that they're having a hard time working through that. There's in these really stuck traumas. Personally, in my work, a lot of it is based on internal family systems work right now. So I've been incorporating that into my practice as well. I do work a lot in addiction though, and I work a lot with men. So I do that. I do recovery coaching, which is Another thing that you'll see a lot in the early recovery industry, but it's when people you know aren't really looking to do deep therapy work, they just need to get sober. Um, so maybe they need your help figuring out how to get to treatment. Maybe they need your help when they leave treatment, just kind of figuring out kind of how to navigate the world and stay sober from more of a, you know, what's your daily schedule, nuts and bolts, accountability perspective. Can you walk us through briefly, if you had somebody in early recovery coming into your private practice, exactly what would you have them do? How, what would the sessions look like? You know, I got, I just got a guy from the same treatment center I went to recently, um, which is kind of pretty cool that the treatment center you went to now refers you clients. Makes me feel really good when that happens. In the beginning, first things first, it's all about relationships. Always has been. I don't care what kind of therapist you are. It's all about building a relationship first and foremost, building trust, building warmth, building rapport, building connection, providing a non-judgmental space for the person to come, feel heard, feel understood, and kind of just move at, at a pace they're comfortable with. In the beginning, it's really, in my experience, it's best to keep it really light in early recovery. I won't generally take clients that aren't at least, haven't at least been to inpatient treatment. When you're working with somebody, it's, it's nice to have a couple months of sobriety under their belt when they start therapy. I mean, when somebody's in their addiction, you're not really able to do any quote unquote work in therapy. You can just maybe try to motivate them to go to treatment. I like people that have gone to treatment and now they're saying, I'm all in. I want to be sober. I want to do the work. That that fires me up. I love it. So when they come, I just want to validate and reflect their positive attitude and the positive things that they've committed to in their recovery. You need community and connection. You need accountability. I love the metaphor of like humans are a complicated houseplant. You know? <laughs> like, tell me about your sleep. Tell me about your exercise routine, if at all. What are you eating? Are you getting sunlight? Are you getting fresh air? That's nice. I like that. I'm going to use that. And then you can kind of tell when so- what's on somebody's mind and their general attitude and vibe. Because like I said, if somebody's really invested in their recovery, they're feeling great in the first few months. It's called the pink cloud, right? And if somebody's into it, into their recovery and, and really wants to be sober, it emanates off them. When somebody's doing it half-assed, doing it because as Oakland's own Marshawn Lynch says, I'm just here so I won't get fined, you know? That attitude in recovery is just a ticking time bomb for relapse when you're like doing it for your girlfriend or, you know, your parents or your job. You're not going to stay sober and you're going to have a shitty attitude. Another tricky one is you have to be really careful when somebody has a sponsor. First off, what's a sponsor? Oh, what's a sponsor? A sponsor in the 12-step program is somebody that basically walks you through the 12 steps, quote unquote, works the steps with you. 
you basically ask the person, hey, will you be my sponsor? And they generally say, sure, if I'm sponsoring you in the beginning, I'd like you to call me every day to check in. We're going to meet once a week and we're going to read, talk about these steps, and I'm going to take you through the 12 steps. And if you ever have a problem, if you're ever freaking out, call me and I'll help you not get loaded. It's a really special relationship and it's, you know, a cornerstone of the 12 step experience and, you know, millions of people say that that saved their lives. So I agree with you that when someone has a sponsor, I, I tend to steer clear. Like my sponsor said such and such, like the last thing I'm going to do is side against their sponsor. Yeah. It's like, don't do that. <laughs> you will lose every time. Yeah. You know, we, we in early recovery are very emotionally fragile uh, and susceptible and sensitive. And we're, we're feeling our emotions for the first time in our lives, really, a lot of the time. To do anything where you're pitting yourself against their sponsor is really not a position that you want to put them in. There's a similar dynamic between therapist and client and sponsor and sponsee. Yes, 100%. Psychologically very similar. So is there anything else you want to add on that subject? Oh, the second part is I, I want to get to the point where we can start to kind of lift up those stones in the backyard and see what's underneath them and start to see what creatures lurk below. Mm -hmm. You know, that deeper trauma, those deeper emotional wounds. Year one to two in sobriety, which I sometimes refer to as the opening the mail year of sobriety. <laughs> Finally opening the, opening the seeing what bills you have. Yeah. And, and I think it applies both literally and figuratively. It does because they don't open their damn mail. It's true. I mean, the mail piles up in early sobriety. There's parking tickets they haven't paid. There's all this wreckage from their using <laughs> that is just like, you know, their car got impounded and there's a lien on their house. So their taxes are all fucked up or whatever it is. They literally yeah. have not opened the mail. That's, that's brilliant. Yes. Man. And it's actually best not to open the mail. <laughs> Because you got to get yourself right and you got to get your sea legs yeah. in recovery. So did you want to talk about attachment theory? Because I don't, my understanding of attachment theory is limited. I would be happy to. And that actually to segue into that is another really cool story involving you and I. Hey, that's right. We were colleagues for a bit, weren't we? <laughs> we were. You know, I worked at multiple different treatment centers, running groups, adult ones, teen ones, uh, young men's programs. And then I get a phone call from you. And you said, Dylan, <laughs> oh my God, check this out. We're at the staff meeting. Christine's like, we need a part-time therapist. Does anybody have any ideas? And I go to Sasha, Sasha, who was, I had worked with at Mirwood Teen Outpatient. So this is what, this is, you're being me right now. Yeah. And I say, Sasha, what do you think about Dylan? And she's like, oh my God, totally fucking Dylan. And so we go to Christine, we walk into Christine's office and we say, Christine, you got to get Dylan. <laughs> yeah, that did happen. We demanded it. And then how does that relate to your attachment theory thing? Right. So then Christine Pappas, fantastic clinician. Yes. Goddess. Fantastic director. If you need to get sober and you're in San Francisco, I could not recommend the foundations program any I can't give it a higher recommendation. So she, she said, I want you to run these groups called Relationships and Recovery, and I'd like you to make an eight-week curriculum. And so what I did is I started thinking about, well, the most important relationship is relationship to self. And so the first couple sessions are examining relationship to self, doing self-compassion work. And then we went, okay, from there, let's look at community relationships and so then we brought in some of the research on community. There's that study about the rat park, which is just fantastic. There was these experiments where they put the rats in cages with drugs only, empty cages with drugs, and then they OD every single time. 
And this researcher said, this is, this is ridiculous. Nobody lives in an empty cage. Let's build a rat park with the most fantastic things rats could ever want. They have community, toys, food, whatever. And we'll also put the drug water in there and not one rat ever overdosed. Yeah, but as an incredibly astute client of mine pointed out, he said, well, what if the other rats are assholes? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and that's, but that was exactly the point of my exercise was, how are you going to build your rat park? Right. So the activity in that group was design your ideal rat park. That includes the people that you would have in it, the activities, the places, et cetera. And then let's try to work towards that. Then from there was your relationship with your family. So we did all the family systems, education, learning all about family systems, family roles and addiction. But then it was, and then the romance part. And so I thought, to me, the most interesting research, the most interesting paradigm when you're talking about romance and psychology and how to work in therapy with someone is based is what's called attachment theory. There was some people who used to be anthropologists and they worked with chimpanzees. They studied what's called attachment with chimpanzees, which is how mothers and other caregivers would bond with their babies and came up with this experiment called the strange situation where they, they have a mom in a room with a kid. The researcher comes in, takes the mom out. They leave the kid alone for a couple of minutes. Kid cries. Mom comes back in. They could determine within basically a minute or two of how that kid responded to the mom, what this kid's attachment style was. And there's basically three basic ones. There's securely attached, which the research says 60% of the population is. I think that is an overblown number. I don't think 60% of us are securely attached. But whenever I make that argument, everyone says, yeah, but Dylan, you hang out with addicts and therapists and people in therapy. Can I say something about that real quick? Yeah, you can, Ben. You know, man, people say that stuff, but what it is is that we hang out with people. And as therapists, we get a better look at human beings. We see more detail every day. And when you take a close look at anybody's life, you see so much chaos. Like I remember in my cohort mm -hmm. down at Pacifica when I went to school, there was this, this thing like, everyone who goes to Pacifica, all these crazy things happen to them. And what it really is is that crazy shit happens to people all the time. <laughs> Houses burn down, people die, they get divorced, they get beat up, they do horrible things, they get hurt, you know? And when you take a deep dive into anybody's life, especially a lot of people's lives, you're going to see some shit, you know? Mm -hmm. Any population, anyone, anywhere. That's what I think. I'm with you. I don't know if it's self-reporting or whatever, but to me, more than half of our population is not securely attached. Supposedly 60% of our population is, meaning they feel like they can trust that someone's going to love them and be there for them. They have no problem giving love. They don't mind people counting on them. They don't mind being counted on. People that just are comfortable being vulnerable and having these close relationships in their life. They're not, they're not scared or they're not anxious. Do people like that exist? <laughs> Supposedly. I haven't met many. I haven't, I haven't. I don't know that I've met a one, but anyway, go on. Yeah. And then there's insecurely attached and there's two insecure attachment styles. There is the avoidant attachment and the anxious attachment. I call myself a recovered anxious attachment person, which means for someone anxiously attached, I'm always wondering where I stand in a relationship. I'm always thinking, what does that mean? Do they still love me? I, I'm always needing the person to give me affirmations that I'm, I'm okay in the relationship. I can spin in my head and make up stories about whenever I reach out to the person, whether it's a text, a phone call, whenever there's a, like a disturbance in the force, we'll call it, I would get really anxious. And all I want to do is feel better. I just, I need to figure out a way to feel like I can secure this attachment, that it's safe, that I'm going to be loved. And I think that comes from having as a kid known the connection having known that great feeling of connection with a caregiver, but also not being able to count on it. 
So learning to feel like I know that feeling of connection, I desire it more than anything. But when I have it, I better work to keep it. And when I don't have it, I better worry because I don't know when I'm going to get it again. So that's anxious attachment. And then avoidant attachment is, I think, more sad. Because avoidant attachment is the person that just does not want to talk about their feelings, does not want to be vulnerable. Um, Whenever there's a disturbance in a force, they want to just go hide. They do not want to deal with it. They do not want to talk about it. I mean, these people invented ghosting, guaranteed. (laughs) And I think that's a result of kind of giving up at some point as a little one, you know, like, fuck it. Like, why should I even try? I'm just, I'm just going to check out. Um, So I ran this group at foundations and I would say, you know, why don't we journal for a little bit and let's all write about our attachment style. And over the course of a couple of years running this group every eight weeks, I would say two or three people even tried to say they were securely attached. And they were the people that probably, you know, were the most insecurely attached (laughs) and were dealing with personality disorders, so cut off from their feelings that they just thought they should say that because their ego told them to say that. But I've worked with hundreds of clients at this point, and every single one is insecurely attached, either anxious or avoidant. And there wasn't really more of one than the other. The other funny irony is that anxious attached people and avoidant attached people always hook up. Interesting. Why is that? Every couple therapist that is a couple therapist, literally every single new couple comes in. You're like, which one's avoidant? Which one's anxious? And it almost happens the exact same script every time. They meet each other. There's a spark. The avoidant person gets hopeful. And in, the, in that first couple months when the infatuation's happening, the avoidant person doesn't appear avoidant at all. They're super excited. They're kind of faux vulnerable. The anxious person feels great. This person meets my needs. They're attentive. They're excited. I feel good. Then as soon as there's that first fight, that first disturbance in the force, the avoidant person takes three steps back. The anxious person goes, just can't deal with it. Where are you going? And then they start to chase the person around. Sometimes you see that in really severe cases with people with a narcissism and a dependent personality disorder. You'll have a, someone who's a narcissist who's just a, a shithead, you know, and then <laughs> you have someone with a dependent personality disorder who wants to be in a relationship no matter what so they can take all the abuse in the world. Oh my God. That's the ex- that is just the turbo glycerin example uh what's that one theory that that one couples therapy that's really popular i think it's really cool need something eft they call it like the the pursue retreat samba or something like that like one person takes three steps forward the other person takes three steps back and then the the anxious person retreats because they're like i give up fine you you know and then the anxious person goes or the avoidant person goes oh well actually i don't want to lose this relationship and they just do this dance cha-cha back and forth but anyway so i started to realize there's something here that i I i'm starting to pay attention to what's going on that every addict that i have met and i've met hundreds of them both clinically and personally Uh don't don't seem to have secure attachment Mm -hmm. and then i started to think about drug addiction drug addiction is an adaptation to an attachment issue because drugs and alcohol will be there for you in a way that no human being could. Mm -hmm. If you didn't feel secure and safe emotionally or physically with your parents growing up, that leaves you really, it's very scary. It's very sad. It's very difficult. And for many of us, we started trying to find ways to kind of cope and medicate at a young age. For me, it was like food, you know, cartoons, whatever. And when you just when you discover drugs and alcohol, they are there for you. You form a secure attachment with your drug of choice because it will always be there for you. It will always provide the effect you need and you can count on it. What happens is people 
once they kind of enter into addiction, it's why people start to isolate. They have maybe friendships, but they don't put any, there's no real connection there. They're just going through the motions. It's like you're going through the motions in all your human relationships because the only relationship that matters is the one with your drug of choice. Yeah. You know, I'm feeling like addiction really is is about attachment trauma. Yes, there's a genetic piece for sure. I think certain people's brains and the way that their pleasure center and their dopamine setup is that you inherit that in your pleasure center is kind of it's absolutely skewed so that uh, you can genetically be more susceptible. But I still haven't found anybody in my work in six, seven years of working in addiction of somebody who was securely attached and just did too much drugs or did yeah. too much alcohol. It kind of reminds me of, of myself, you know, like I've got a, a pretty difficult relationship with food on a, you know, a week, a Sunday night or whatever, you know, I can hole up in my apartment and like plan a big old meal and I feel completely whole <laughs> because I've got food. Right. And now that's not totally abnormal. But I think I take it to another level where it's like it's me and this food and we're going to have a good old time. I relate to that. And, and I think you're I think you're on it. There's a way in which human beings failed us and then drugs didn't. Yeah. But then the tragedy is the drugs turn on you. Yeah. And ruin your life and almost and oftentimes almost or actually kill you. Yeah. I would add a nuance to it. I, I don't know that people sort of even on a subconscious level say, oh, humans have failed me. I think that it's sort of like there's a vacuum of love in their mm -hmm. soul. And when they take that drug, they feel that vacuum fill up momentarily. Correct. Absolutely subconscious. But your primary relationship is that you've actually found some type of secure attachment. And then you get sober, aka the one thing that has ever provided you consistent relief in your life from your emotional pain and from your attachment trauma. You basically don't get to do it for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that's what's the starting point of early recovery, yeah. right? And then we're like, okay, you're totally raw and vulnerable. You haven't actually felt your feelings in decades, maybe, because you've been self-medicating. You've really forgotten how to stay connected to others because you've put all of your work into staying into your relationship with your drug of choice. So you're insecurely attached to begin with. And then you're like, go out into this community, bond with these people in your SLE and your IOP and your 12-step program and your meditation group and be vulnerable with them. But they're also oftentimes in early recovery. And it's like, it's a really, it's, it's like a minefield almost, you know, yeah. emotional minefield to like navigate this while learning to stay sober. You're so raw and vulnerable. You're being told by everybody in your quote unquote treatment team, your sponsor therapist, all these people, you need community, you need relationships. That's true. You do need those things, but you're also going to get hurt. It's like emotional kindergarten a lot of the time. Yeah. A lot of these relationships. So it's just, it's really hard. And I think maybe that's something as therapists that I know I try to help people navigate is um, help them to find perspective and make healthy choices in their relationships and help them to feel their feelings in a safe way. And I think the best thing we can be, right? And I think this is the whole, when, when it all comes down to at the most simplest form, therapy is about providing someone's often first secure attachment so that they can start to... Really? securely attached relationships in the world that's called earned secure attachment in as the that's theory cool. goes good stuff dylan so i guess i just want to close by saying that i hope that anyone who's in early recovery or wants to work 
in early recovery or has a loved one in early recovery isn't too discouraged by all this. There are really good people in this industry and there are people just trying to make a buck in this industry. Yeah. So I guess the first thing is is to really make sure you vet vet your people well. And yeah, there's a lot of landmines and there are a lot of slips and relapses, yeah. but there's also a lot of good treatment out there. Yeah. And I just hope people aren't going, oh my God, like this is impossible. You know, folks, Dylan and I are just talking about the insanity that we've experienced because it's, it's interesting to listen to. You know, if it, if, it le- if it bleeds, it leads, that kind of thing. And there's a lot of blood in this field. Um, but there's a lot of light, yeah. there's a lot of beauty, and there's a lot of really fantastic recovery stories. I guess I should have probably have included those, but I, I didn't. And there's me. There's you. There's there's and Dylan is awesome. And look, guys, if you have a problem in your life that's related to this, give Dylan a call. Give me a call. If we can't yeah. help you, we will know somebody who can. And if we don't, we will find someone who knows somebody who can. Yeah. One of the um, kind of mandates of recovery is that, you know, especially in a, folks that are in AA or NA, is that if somebody reaches out to you for help in this field, you're kind of obligated. It's kind of like, you know, there's those those laws in Australia where if you're driving along the road and you see someone who's broken down, you have to pull over and help them because they could die out there. And uh, I feel like recovery is a lot. Would you agree that recovery is like a little like that? I would. It's not a little like that. It is like it that. It is like that. Okay. Yeah. So good analogy, I guess. That's- there's not a more cardinal sin than in recovery than somebody calling you for help. Yeah. And somebody like leaving you a voicemail. Yeah. Or sending you a text, I'm in big trouble, please call me back. And you going, eh. Eh. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, for all those listening also, the, the community aspect of recovery is astonishing. Whatever positive purpose religion has served humanity throughout the ages, whatever good came out of it, has all, in my opinion, been distilled into the community of recovery. It's absolutely incredible. It's just, there's nothing but love and connection and it's amazing. It's just amazing. If you don't believe me, go to an AA meeting. Just go walk into one. Go go smell the air in there. They're incredible. I believe at one point, Ben, you almost, you said something like, I'm, I wish I was an addict because <laughs> I love what you guys have. Didn't you say something like that? I've, I've said that many times. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I don't wish I were an addict. I think that's, that's kind of a cheap thing to say. I wish I had that level of community in my life. I wish I had a place yeah. that I could go and be heard and seen and understood and not judged by lots of people all the time. One of my favorite things to do is to go to Marin County and go to some of those uh, AA meetings because I know a lot of the people in them. And just the kindness and warmth is just, it's in the air. Mm-hmm. It's its incredible. So listen, Dylan, yeah. Mr. Kirsch, it has been an absolute pleasure and an honor. I am so incredibly impressed with your progress. Somewhere in the field, you passed me up. I don't know how, but you did. And I appreciate that. And we should do this again at some point. Yes, I really had a good time. And um, yeah, if anybody has any questions for me, I try to be as generous with my time as possible. All right. Well, good night, sir. Yes. Time to go be a dad. Good night. Thank you for listening. Pertinent information stemming from this episode will be available in the program notes. Should you have any questions or wish to be a guest on my show, you may contact me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or go to my website at benjaminrusick.com. In addition, I really encourage you to subscribe, share, and all the rest. Thanks again. And remember, if you ever find that your plate is full, well, consider getting a bigger plate.